Hey there, Lisa Kefauver here, host of this podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Before we start today's show, I want to tell you about some incredible people I've met recently who've created an important product I just know you're going to love. Julian and TJ, creators of GiftPod, have combined their personal experiences of loss and their desire to share and create memories of their loved ones with their professional skills and technical talents to create GiftPod, an audio memory in the form of a private podcast. Whether you want to create a collection of memories to share as part of a memorial service, or maybe record messages to send to someone who is approaching the end of their life, or like me, you want to create a special recording for your child about all that their dad loved about them, then GiftPod is for you. Here's the thing. It's more than just a product. It's even more than just a beautifully produced private podcast, which is pretty cool in itself. It's really a meaningful experience, made even sweeter because you'll be guided through the process by these two very special guys. They are fans of my show, so they wanted to support my work here at GSB. And they wanted to help you too, my listeners. They've created a special discount code just for you. How cool is that? To learn more, visit giveagiftpod.com. Oh, and don't forget to enter GSB10 at checkout. Don't worry, I'll drop the website and the discount code in the show notes for today's episode. At the same time, though, the, the hope of doing the trauma recovery work and the grief work is not that you have to stay in that exact space or swim in it forever, but then on the other side of it, because we have this neurological net, so then when trauma happens, not only does, does that experience get encapsulated in this net, but also who we were at that time, our creativity, our interest, our potential, our potentiality yeah. is locked up in that. Yeah. So when we unpack the the grief or unpack the trauma, we're also unpacking our potential. And I've seen so often when people come back and they're like, oh my gosh, I used to play the guitar or I'm better with numbers now, or I don't have the social anxiety anymore because now they've released not only the incident, but everything the incident robbed robbed them of. Yeah. 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 Being like stuck in that point in time to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. So, as I mentioned, I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. And through this show and my work at Reimagining Grief, I'm on a mission, a mission to change the narratives of grief, one conversation at a time. In today's episode, my guest, Junice Rockman, brings her personal and professional wisdom to our powerful and far-reaching conversation. We explore so many topics from the impact of unprocessed grief and trauma across generations to the embodied nature of grief and the brain-body connection. We share some of the insights and practices we've both discovered over our careers that people have found helpful in honoring grief. We, well, we've just talked about so much, so let's just dive right in. Junice and I are kindred spirits, as you will hear, and I can't wait for you to meet her. 
Welcome, Junice, to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. It is so nice to have human contact with you from a distance. <laughs> we're near each other, but yeah. trust us, we're so appropriately physically distant. We are. We since are. we don't have our masks on, which is another thing feels weird to be in a be in a room without a mask. I know. It's just how quickly we become like operant conditioning, how yeah. we get used to. Yeah. And that becomes a what used to be familiar becomes unfamiliar now. Exactly. Yeah. So can you start just by sharing sort of your name, your title, kind yeah. of what you do in the world and maybe why we've come together or why you think we've come together to have this conversation here on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Janice Rockman. Some people call me Jay or J-Rock. Um, I have a practice, a brain-based clinical practice called J-Rock Therapy, and I treat trauma, addiction, um, and uh, family systems work through mm-hmm. using brain-based approaches because we have neuroplasticity. We have this phenomenal organism that we just don't haven't learned how to retrain our brain. So yeah. a lot of my work in the world is to help make mental health con- uh, conversations mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, I do that in media as a contributor for CBS here in Austin and also NPR radio. And, um, you know, just really, I, I really am passionate about, about pioneering behavioral health literacy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I love that notion of sort of, sort of making mainstream and making mainstream and mm-hmm. making visible these really important conversations that around mental health, which a hundred percent of us, you know, have some experience. We have some room to grow. We have some healing to do, and we can't do that until we kind of name it and make yeah, it visible. Yeah, for right? sure. I think I feel like twenty twenty for sure pushed it right to the forefront for everybody. Yeah. What used to seem like a luxury is now a necessity or at least acknowledged as such, which is mental health care. So for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, y'all, we're gonna we're in for such a treat today. I was lucky enough to have a conversation with Junie's maybe a month or two ago. Yeah. She took over my IG live at Reimagining Grief. Um, and share some wisdom with us in terms of techniques. But I know today we're going to explore um, grief, the way it's sometimes pathologized, kind of the interventions that you see. We might talk about intergenerational trauma and grief, race and grief. Who knows? We're going to just see where the conversation mm-hmm. goes. But I'd love to start where I start uh, with all my guests on the show, and that's asking you, What's your earliest memory of grief in your growing up life, in your childhood? And when you think about what that incident was, whether it was a death loss or some other kind of loss, how are the adults in your life modeling grief implicitly, explicitly? And what do you think that taught you about what grief should look like? And I know you can appreciate the sort of generational and cultural family systems way we learn things. So I'm particularly interested to hear your reflections on that time in your life. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting. It's interesting being a person um, in this country that had roots in other places, but those roots were interrupted by this entire Mm -hmm. transatlantic slave trade trauma that happened for centuries. And so... The way that, like, my maternal grandmother, who is part Native, Indigenous American, a little, a little Irish with her red hair and freckles. She's adorable. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm picturing it now. Oh, yeah. yeah. She's, like, really little. She has two braids, these two, like, big braids that she wears that look a lot like her Native grandma. Um, for them, you know, the idea of grief and death was a spiritual thing. It was a return to earth. Yeah. 
it was a process of life. It's like the sun rising and, you know, the moon coming out at night. It was just something that we... Natural. A natural, a celebration, you know, like, all right, it's a coming of ages. This has happened. We bless you. We give you back to the earth. Beautiful. Right? Yeah. So you have that. um, And then I have... So then I have, so I, I was saying it's a Nigerian Native American and people are like, what? (laughs) Don't throw Irish in there. But, but then you have, so, so then you have like, so from the continent of Africa and the way that a lot of folks grieve there, and there's over 50 countries, by the way. So it's not just one big country. It's a continent. (laughs) Um, But there, there's also that ceremonial kind of beauty. Like the fact, the idea that tears are a ceremony. And that tears are cleansing and beautiful. And this idea that's like, you know, the four elements, earth, water, fire, um, you know, um, and air, and that we embody the four elements. And so that when we, when we're, when we're crying and grieving in that way, it's just a part of this, this, this grand life cycle. We're one organism. Yeah. So you have that, but then you have the trauma of people being removed from, from their language and, Oh my God! I mean, you can go on and traditions, on. Cultural, and traditions, cultural, spiritual practices, and and just yeah. just levels of assault and torture and all of this. And so, I think by that time, bringing that whole context together, by the time like my parents and people in my life as a child growing up experienced grief, it was kind of something to pack away, tuck away, try not to deal with it, whisper about uncle so-and-so who just passed away. And right. it's kind of like, as a kid, I can remember like kind of peering around the counter, like, what are they all talking about? Like, yeah. What happened? It was very hush-hush. It and, was very hush-hush. Yeah. yeah. So I think that that, like our way of mourning was, was, was also lost in that process historically. And so by the time it came to me, it was different. Had it not been for like, for my grandma, who was very vigilant about sharing you know, and passing down the oral tradition so I could know how to do these things in a very natural, holistic way, I wouldn't have known. And I would have just been as shocked and horrified and disconnected from it as I was growing up learning to be. Yeah. 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 So you mentioned maybe an uncle, but so there was kind of people in your life, Uh someone passed and overall, you would say in your family, the sort of culture was like, Shh, don't talk about yeah, don't it, talk especially about with it. kids, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Don't talk about it. And then like hide the grief, like stuff it away. You might notice like little burst or someone crying. You're like, wait, what's happening? And it's just like, I'm fine. I almost go away kind of yeah. thing. And then this particular, it was actually a great uncle. He had served, I, th- I want to say he was in Vietnam, but he had been a victim of um, racist, uh, racism and assault in while he was serving. So when okay. he came back, he came back with severe mental illness, not just from the war, but from that as yeah. well. So then that was also very hush-hush. Right. So the layers of that It was kind layered. Of, yeah. yeah. It was complex trauma yeah. and complex grief. Yeah. Yeah. And so and it wasn't until like maybe going to some of like the funerals and things like that where um, people would really get upset and go and, ha- and become hysterical and like, you know, talking to the person yeah. in the casket, like, don't leave. And it, 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 and that became shocking and very dis- dis- but also disturbing. But was, also, was it sort of like in your family, well, that was, if you're going to let it out, yeah. that's the place. And then yeah, and like, it was, it, get it done there. Right, and then- right. And it always seemed to be like during like the procession, like the final moment when they're going to take the, you know, take the casket out yeah. and that sort of thing. And then the person would just kind of lose it. And it was like, oh my gosh. And that was... Difficult because it wasn't discussed after. So I've seen that. And then with some friends, I've also seen this other tradition of like celebration of life, which sometimes can take on a form of, <laughs> it feels to me a little bit like toxic positivity where it's like, 
Yeah. There's so much celebration that it almost feels like we're going to do this instead of feeling any pain. Exactly. Yeah. So I've, I've seen just, I've only the seen extremes. the extremes and I've only heard about the holistic approach from grandma. <laughs> That's incredible. Oh man. There's so many things I want to explore there. I think that toxic positivity that you're talking about is part of the sort of harm that happens to people who are trying to grieve, particularly again in the U.S. I know we have listeners from around the world on this show. So the reference point here in our conversation is U.S. culture Mm -hmm. versus then the, which I think kind of goes hand in hand with the, then if it's not happy, don't show it. Mm -hmm. Hide it away, tuck it away. And it becomes a pathologizing way of seeing what your grandmother would have said, which mm-hmm. is a very natural, yeah. like meant to be. This is how we we come. We pass through this life, yeah. these bodies, this planet, and we return. This yeah. earth suit. This yeah, earth this suit. earth suit. Ooh, right. I love that. Yeah. yeah. So I say to I say to a lot of my clients, I'm like, this whole journey is about a return to love. Yeah. Like, how can we release as much fear as we can and lean into as much love and abundance and Every person that comes into our life, we're all on our different paths. So we can release our need to control what that person was supposed to mean to yeah. us, before us, and how long they were supposed to be there. Yeah. You know, um, and then return to like your most loving, highest self, that divine self that's within yeah. all of us. And so, gosh, you know, when you think of it like that, and then if we can start to re-educate our children in that way, it can reinform their expectation, you know. And then if we don't put a label on on anger or um, or shock or even depression, if we don't put a label on it as a negative thing, right. but as a part of a natural process. expression. Yeah, of, yeah, natural expressions. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and I think part of what you're talking about there, there's, again, so many things came to mind. I don't know if you read Bell Hook's latest All About mm. Love book, but whenever that she has a lot to say on that nice. particular topic, I've been um, rereading that lately. But I think the piece that you're talking about there is how do we sort of see our grief actually really as the other side of the coin of love and expression, but that how do we allow ourselves to hold space for all of it, Mm -hmm. for the love and the celebration of life and the anger and the shock and maybe the resentment Mm -hmm. or the relief or the fear or all of the emotions that can come with grief, whether it's death loss or some other kind of grief situation. Yeah, we're multidimensional beings. I remember I was on the beach recently. And um, I decided I wanted to go at sunrise, which is, you know, like an act of God because I like to sleep in late. So <laughs> I love that. I did it. Yeah. Thanks. So I had like my fresh shoes and I brought my breakfast. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to do yoga and watch the sunrise. I did it. I did the whole thing. All right. Had my yogi moment. Um, but I said that to say, I remember <clears throat> looking at the ocean and watching the, the tide come in. And then I was noticing that the moon was in the sky. Mm-hmm. And the moon was in the sky at the same time that the sun was starting to rise. Yeah. And and I I have chills just thinking about it because I think this idea of us coexisting in humanity and that our thoughts and our experiences and our feelings, they can coexist. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Yeah. It doesn't have to be either or. It can be both and. And is my word. Everybody who, every intern, every <laughs> clinical person has, any employee that's ever worked for me is like, oh, here comes Lisa so I'm with speaking her your and. language. <laughs> They're like, anytime somebody says the word but, I'm like, and? <laughs> so yeah, I love yeah. that. And I mean, you're back to talking about that sort of natural elemental way of, of thinking about the world that yeah. we have this complexity. It's yeah, really because beautiful. we become very disconnected, I think, from our true selves mm. and our spiritual selves and in our, in our, in our pursuit of Western knowledge. And, yeah. 
you know, educating ourselves. We've educated our our sense of consciousness. We have this consciousness that can't be quantified by time and space. We have a collective consciousness, by yeah. the way. You exactly. Know? And so, but that doesn't fit neatly into the binary top ten list, five ways to kind of culture that we've yeah. created, which some of those scientific models and ways of seeing the world are useful. So it's mm-hmm. not all good, bad, and <laughs> and and. <laughs> I think when we think about it, though, in terms of the social, spiritual, existential space, it becomes problematic because we try to sort of fold ourselves into this little box or this checklist that becomes... Then I think that's where the real harm happens. I see in lots of domains over the course of my career when I was a traditional social worker and narrative therapist, but even now in my work with Mm. people in grief, is that the harm that is caused is actually mostly caused by trying to sort of fold ourselves into this binary. Yeah. I either have to feel grateful that I had a time with them or allow myself to be sad and I can't be both. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then we try to put time frames on it because we have this ego, we have this idea that we have to be somewhat omniscient to know everything and maybe be omnipresent and know, you know, how it's going to work out and where where all the pieces are and yeah. how they're going to fall into place. And part of life is surrendering and understanding that there is a degree in which we are powerless over these things, but there's something in that powerlessness and that surrendering that becomes powerful yeah. for us, you know. And and we need to give our, our brain and our body an opportunity to detox and to release some of those, um, you know, stress hormones and neurochemicals so that it can cleanse itself and it can realign um, itself. And if we have, uh, you know, a genetic predisposition to depression or uh, PTSD triggers because of epigenetics and how there's a chemical imprint and a mark that's made on gene expression Mm -hmm. through regenerations, like people's experiences live on in the gene expression of their ancestors, literally, literally, you know, then we really do need to allow ourselves to have that healing process. And I think that there's just a lot of fear that if we do let those emotions, energy, emotion come through, that we won't be able to withstand it or we'll never pick ourselves back up. And that's that self-fulfilling prophecy because Mm -hmm. we don't sit. And I always say, like, invite your emotions over, like visitors over for a cup (laughs) of coffee, right? So when we don't practice that experience of allowing the pain, the heartache, the anger, the rage, whatever, to wash over us, we, you know, we have this fear it's going to be a tsunami when we let it in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then we don't let it in, so then it builds up even bigger, right? And then that's that fear. And I think... Um, that's again reinforced culturally too. Yeah, I think, it like. is, and it can it can further exacerbate post traumatic stress disorder because part of what happens oftentimes for for many folks is that they start to experience numbing or dissociation, yeah. disconnection. You know, and what happens is if we just if we go in the direction of suppression for too long, then then we'll just sort of reach um, a wall. Yeah, you know, and and just become disconnected, but that's not helpful or sustainable in the long run either. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and it just it sort of reinforces some of the real harm and consequences of, for instance, grief. I think of um, the sort of isolation and loneliness that happens in grief, not just because maybe your person died, you know, your partner died, but because you're so numbed and walled off. It's so much more difficult to sort of re-emerge and re-enter and reconnect in the world. Yeah. yeah. The difficult part about walls is that the same walls that we erect to keep ourselves safe are the same ones that keep out the light and the love and the potential yeah. and the healing. Yeah. And, you know, we're often wounded in community, so we need to heal in community. 
Which is another, I think, when you when you were talking sort of about the history in of um, cultures and in your yeah. particular family coming over, but I think since the U.S. is a is a country of mm-hmm. immigrants, both against will, slavery, but also immigrants. Like my father is is an immigrant from Hungary. Mm-hmm. His father was in the camps in in Auschwitz. So speaking of intergenerational yeah, epigenetic. Yeah, i Auschwitz. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You can feel the energy. You can feel the energy. On the ground. Um, wow. But one of the things that I think the reason I brought that up is yeah. when you talked about the sort of healing in the collective is I think so many other cultures, current day cultures in other countries besides the U.S., as you were saying, healing and grief, that it was a collective, that it was a community, that we do this together in community. And this sort of sterilization yeah. that has happened um, makes it really difficult. So I yeah. don't think this is just historically the way grief or sort of harm and healing has happened. This is a particularly maybe 21st century U.S. culture. Yeah, um, I think so too. Kind of so institution. Too. Yeah, and because I think the U.S. has um, played a big role in shaping global culture through media and yeah. arts and entertainment education, I think it has had like a domino effect. Agree. You know, and yeah. how we're how we're processing this. And so... Um, yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's also just like sort of that collective consciousness and that's that feeling of, of loss and what's happening right now with this uh, pandemic. There's a lot of people who even just have experienced like vicarious trauma from taking in having a heavy news diet yeah. and keeping count of the COVID related deaths and keeping count of the police brutality related videos and yeah. keeping count of the political uh, inflammatory rhetoric, you know, it's, and it, it has just become very toxic and unsafe for folks within yeah. their, their own selves. Yeah, yeah. And it's become like collective mourning, having to face these issues, these huge existential issues all at one time in one in it one is. Year. And it's collective mourning, except that we can't collect together. And so we yeah. can't do that healing work together, which I think for so many folks is exacerbating it. And they often don't feel sort of emotionally held and safe, you know, in their own family systems or, or, and then certainly they're isolated from the kind of families that they've maybe been able to access. Yeah, very true. You know, it's, it's sort of, um, you know, the thing about it too, is if we're not, if we are not processing our own pain or our own grief, we won't be able to hold space for other people. So then oftentimes people feel like, well, who do I, who do I turn to and do, and and I don't want to become that person that every time you talk to me, this is my, my new banner, you know? Yes, exactly. I don't want to be that guy or that girl or whatever it is. So they tend to just internalize it and keep it to themselves, which causes, you know, further isolation. And then people will say things like, well, let me know, or, you know, I'm here. And that is- Passive. Oh Oh, my gosh. The worst. The worst. The worst. Actually, I did a post today at Reimagining Grief about that, a daily invitation about like, A, being careful to not ask the leading question where you have an agenda where you're trying to fix somebody when you're showing up in support. And bearing witness, and to re- and to be remembered to um, show up and invite kind of the quiet soul from that person to emerge. So maybe instead mm-hmm. asking questions like, "What do you want me to know about what's going on right now?" or "Can you tell me a little bit about your person?" Mm-hmm. or something that sort of invites the mm-hmm. sort of soul to come out. That's um, great. I like that. What can you tell me about your person? Because by you not bringing up the person yeah. doesn't make their grief go away. <laughs> I always say people are like, I didn't want to bring them up because I didn't want to upset you. I'm like, the 
We were thinking about the person. Oh yeah. You not bringing it up just makes me think you weren't thinking right, about the person, right. and yeah. that I and that I am not safe. As you were mm-hmm. talking about this sort of sense of safety, mm-hmm. that it wasn't safe for me to bring it up. Yeah. And the other thing is when we don't open up. You know, I loved what you were talking about there about like when we don't acknowledge or open up about our own pain, we not only can't then show up and bear witness for other people's pain, we're modeling back to the conversation we had about the beginning about how, what you learned in your childhood around grief is when we don't talk about our own hard things, then we are implicitly modeling to everyone around us, it's not okay to talk about hard yeah. things with me. Right, exactly. You know, yeah. even if that's not, even if you think of yourself as being very empathetic and you want to show up and you want to be supportive, yeah. people actually are watching. Well, they never seem to have anything going wrong in their life. They never tell me about any hard things. So I don't want to be the friend who gets to be known mm-hmm. as the person who says, I'm still, I cried all night last night uh-huh. over my husband who died nine years ago. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think that's so true. And I think for, in particular for a lot of people like folks of color it's there it's like a badge of honor like how strong you can be or mm-hmm. if you don't cry like oh you handled that so well <laughs> which that can be really harmful and i think that it came from a space of like being a coping mechanism because there was I mean, there's time. a survival that's right, a survival we have instinct time to stop and fall apart like you have to live you yeah. have to survive yeah. how about that yeah but we're still using some of those older coping mechanisms from, you know, a couple of centuries ago when we no longer, when we can learn how to thrive. And yeah. we cannot thrive by living in survival brain. We cannot thrive that by That reptilian living. brain does not really allow for thriving. No, like <laughs> living in that amygdala threat detection activated sympathetic nervous system state where, you know, you're constantly just cycling between fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Yeah. Um, and then that becomes like sort of a way of life. And I think that's where tapping and breath work and the guided meditations that you offer and things like that become so important to unlock because our body will lock trauma in our nervous system at a cellular level. Yeah. So it's so important to begin to unlock that so that you can get, you can learn how to, you know, once you survive, learn how to thrive right. again. When we come back... Junice and I explore how sometimes the approaches we learn to help us get through grief or other challenges earlier in our lives, well, they become maladaptive or no longer serve us. She offers practical wisdom and insights that will help us develop new strategies. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefover. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. What you're talking about is is really interesting, Junice, because one of the things I think I hear people say to me often, either in writing or through the one-on-one work or when I'm do- doing a workshop, is like they say, well, that's just how I always did it, or that is how we showed up in the family, you know, it's sort of those techniques. Or they start to feel guilty and shameful, like, well, I don't know, that's just how we always did it in my family. And my invitation is always like, those techniques that are in your life came because for a reason, they protected you at at one time. And there's no reason to feel shame or judgment. In fact, we might take a look at those techniques and have compassion for them. Say like, hey, that really helped you survive. Either that helped your ancestors survive, or maybe that helped you survive a difficult relationship or a difficult childhood. Mm -hmm. But the invitation is, how is it serving me now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just to bring real like curiosity and self-compassion. 
and say, hmm, I don't feel like this This is actually keeping me walled off or this is keeping me stuck or this is keeping me. And so I always say like kind of Marie Kondo at it, like, you know, like, thank you yes. for your service. <laughs> You're a gift. Lovingly, Lovingly release you what? back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I release you back into the world. Yeah. But that also requires us then to develop new ways of operationalizing and new ways of thriving. How have you seen people do that kind of replacing, that kind of letting go of coping strategies or systems that maybe were once survival systems and replacing them with things that are really around thriving. Uh Yeah, I think I've shared this metaphor with you before, like a person that has fought a battle and they're walking through the desert and they're still wearing the same armor for the battle. But now the same armor that got them through that battle is weighing them down. It's too heavy and it's getting in the way of their journey to the next space. So it's like lovingly putting that armor down. Thank you for serving me, but you no longer, you, you know, this yeah. is no longer serving me. It's actually getting in the way. Yeah. And it's a, it's a daily practice. It's a daily habit. It's a daily routine. And I think it also helps having community that is in that recovery process with you that's safe, that you can share, like, what are you doing today? You, you know. can be vulnerable with, like, yeah. I, I kept carrying that armor today. And you yep. can have that loving community that says, like, exactly. hey, what might it feel like to you set that down? You need a recovery community. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's just, it's, this is, 12-step is not just for, or the, the concept of 12-step, yes. I should say, is not just for substance abuse disorder. The concept of recovery and having a community and having accountability and having folks that you can check in with. Um, because that helps to accelerate the process of neuroplasticity and accelerate mm. the process of learning those new habits and behaviors till they become not just an event, but a lifestyle. It yeah. becomes now a part of who you are. I also think that community that you're talking about, that sort of bearing witness community, it's not just a community of accountability, which is important as we retrain our yeah. brain and retrain our habits. But I also think like I studied narrative therapy and the works of like David White and those those folks. And one of the things I always loved about their work was we need people to sort of reflect back to us the narratives that we are saying and and to also reflect back to us the exception stories because we get very stuck in our ruts of like the problem story of our life and the ways in which we're failing and not doing it. And when we have this beloved community or this Mm -hmm. community of accountability and support, those are the kind of folks who can reflect back to us, hey, I've noticed it used to be you were X, Y, and Z, but in the last three times I saw you, you were, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. A, B, and C. And mm-hmm. to have that community who's outside of yourself, who can reflect back a new narrative or sort of bear witness yeah. to that transformation um, is beautiful because the truth is we are always a thousand times harder on ourselves than we are when we're showing up for somebody else. So having that community, right, right is no, somebody. No, it's so true. I remember hearing... A mentor, she was talking to a group of us one time, and she was like, if you think you're the nicest person in the world, you're not kind or compassionate or nice at all if you can't be kind to yourself. So she's like, what is your self-talk like? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Especially when you get under stress and once, you know, um, the reptilian brain is activated and the cortisol is firing off and you know, the adrenaline is pumping and then we go back to that default sort of framework of thinking. Yeah. And even that takes practice, re- retraining and, and rethinking um, 
and noticing, like having that accountability in the moment. It's the noticing. <laughs> it's like you can't yeah. retrain that. Mm-hmm. I always talk about this in the in the guise of the shoulds of grief. I'm, mm. uh, you know, I do work. Um, in fact, I have a workshop coming up about called ditching the shoulds of grief. And one of the things that I talk about, and that's that self talk that you're talking about. Sometimes it's self talk that we've, of course, learned from the culture. I should be over it by now. I shouldn't be crying. I shouldn't be mad. I shouldn't be relieved. Whatever all the shoulds are. Yeah. Um, but you can't do anything with it until you start to notice it. And when we have all of those thoughts that are, as you said, are sort of core reptilian, you don't even know they're there. And they also have this quality of being true with a capital T. They're so convincing in their quiet whispering in your ear, you know, in your reptilian brain. And it isn't until you do some of the work that you were talking about to first notice and go like, hmm, did you just hear what... Did you just hear what you said Did to you yourself? You said? Did you just hear what you said? <laughs> right. Would you talk to your mother that way? <laughs> Would you talk to your best friend that way? Yeah. And we can't really retrain our brain until we start to notice yeah. what are some of those ways in which we talk mm-hmm. to ourselves. Yeah, it's a way of taking back your own personal power too mm. because I, am, I used to talk a lot about um, releasing the need to have external validation in terms of it owning your identity. Yeah. I think we all like some, a good dose of external validation, <laughs> right? There's, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. That's very human. But when it owns your identity, who you are yeah. is about what's happening outside of you rather than what's happening in you. Because at the beginning and the end of it, you've always been enough. And the resources that you need to heal and recover and rebuild, yeah. they, they reside within you. Yeah. Right. And doesn't mean you don't reach out, but they reside within you. And so part of I think when we experience these things is that opportunity to return to, to ourself and return to that which is divine within us. Yeah. Um and you know, oftentimes it can it can feel like it's happening to you, but sometimes you'll find over time it's it's rather happening for you. And <laughs> and it doesn't mean that it takes all the triggers away when you do this recovery work. It doesn't yeah. mean um First of all, it's not linear, of course. It's not going to always be a straight path. It's not going to always be sprinkles and yoga. You can't yoga just check off your little rainbows. five to-dos and... I'm all better I'm done. now. No, it's going to be some long nights and self-deprecation. I mean, we're on this journey and- <laughs> forever, right? This yes, is, yes. I mean, this is the gift of being in these yes. human skins and being in, being in yes, this space. Yes, yes. Yeah. But once you get to a certain level of healing and recovery, I do think that the triggers become less yeah. often. They become less intense. And the duration and your ability to bounce back, that changes. Well, and back to what we were talking about earlier, you've you've allowed the waves to come in and go. And so you have this experiential, both in your brain, but also sort of in your cognitive mind that like, hey, waves, triggers have happened, waves have come, and I was okay. It. Yeah. And I have now, I, that has happened three times, five times, 20 times over the last you know, five years and I'm okay. And I was okay then. Yep. So even if the trigger, it's not the necessarily, I would think the goals that the triggers won't come. We're recording this in the, in the midst of the holiday season here. So triggers and grief are a, are a real thing. So it's not necessarily that the triggers won't come. It's that we build up this capacity to know sort of experientially, I can ride this wave. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. And we get to know not just exactly. can I ride this wave, but what are these coping strategies or what are the things yeah. I need to do for my self-care, whether it's tapping, whether it's meditation, whether it's journaling, whether it's screaming, whether it's doing less. Can we just talk about like 
just paring it down. Paring it the minimalism. F down. <laughs> Again, counterculture idea here. Right. Lower the, your standards. Lower your standards. <laughs> well, I would say lower your volume. I know. I right? Know, yeah. I know. I'm being. <laughs> Maybe raise your standards, lower your volume. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and but because we've done it over and over and over over time through this kind of recovery phrase as you're talking about it, we have that lived experience and then we've developed those strategies. Right, right. And sometimes it's like, well, now what do I do? It's just like rinse and repeat. Yeah. Just keep doing it. Yeah. Keep doing the work because big doors swing on small hinges, you know. Yeah. It's just a little bit. It's the incremental stuff yeah. over time yeah. that that makes a difference. And and learning, you know, imploring like an arsenal of various coping strategies, whether it's, oh, I have my lavender essential oil roller or, oh, yeah. I have my, you know, B12 supplement or CBD oil or, oh, I stretch or I yeah. tap or I breathe or I call a friend or I scream in a pillow. You can just keep, you know, yeah. you know, imploring, you know, I eat something, good food or hydrate, get a, take a nap and rest. That does a great deal for reducing trauma oh response and reducing inflammation, you know? Right, right. So yeah, but just learning those and, and getting curious about, you know, those empowering questions instead of just why is this happening to me, but like, you know, what do I need to learn? What do I need to know? And who can this help? Yeah. Um, that becomes more empowering than just why, 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 but what do I need to learn here? Yeah. You know, what do I need to know? And who will you become in that process becomes more, more powerful than what it is that you're actually experiencing, I think. Yeah. In the long run. That meaning making kind of experience mm-hmm. is really important. And, and I think too, when you're faced with those kind of those triggers, those waves, some people call them in grief, grief bursts. Yeah. I think one of the questions that um, that I get so most often is like, what do I do? How how do I go on? Whether it's early grief or kind of later on, and my invitation or my reminder, again, very counterculture, is you don't have to have it all figured out, and there isn't one way to have it all figured out. So you just have to. What's the next best thing I can do in this moment? And it's mm-hmm. not even maybe in this day. It's mm-hmm. like in the next like yeah. fifteen minutes. Yeah. What can I do? And if we can give ourselves that space, that grace to not be like, I have to have it all figured out. I yeah. just need to know like, let me sit and listen quietly. Right. To like I had all these plans and actually if I listen quietly, not to the noisy loud talker in my mm-hmm, head, mm-hmm. but to the quiet part of my soul, then I might discover what I need is a fifteen minute nap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it goes from just day some you know day tight compartments can be helpful, but sometimes it's hour tight compartments or fifteen minute increments. Yeah. Just get you know through this next increment of time, and that's what mindfulness and mindful living is. Being in this present moment, that nothing that is before me is more significant than what's happening right now, mm. and nothing behind me matters more than what is in this exact moment. And that—that that is what we have. This moment that is mindful living. And you know, you talked about riding the waves. Like life is like water. When you don't know, go with the flow. Like our bodies are over seventy percent water. Our brains are over seventy yeah. percent water. This earth, this planet, this little pebble flying through the sky, yeah, is over seventy percent water. And I remember a lifeguard one time saying to me, like, hey, if you ever get caught in a riptide while you're out there on the in the ocean, um, make sure you go with the flow because the resistance to what's happening is what, what causes tires people you to out. tire you out. Right. Yeah. So learning that acceptance. And it takes so much humility and letting go of ego yeah. and letting go of forceful control to learn to begin to accept. And it doesn't mean that you don't still set goals or have things that you want to do, but there's this idea of mindful acceptance in the moment. And it just, it's so freeing. It is absolutely so freeing. I mean, I would say of the, 
all the sort of tools I've tried in my toolkit, both for my own personal journey and then in support of other people, I think mindfulness is is the best and in some ways has been the hardest because it definitely takes uh, retraining, it counters the ego, yeah. you know, I should know what to do. Um, <laughs> but it has been really revolutionary, I would say. Yeah, in, yeah in it is. Shifting. It really, really is. And I know, I remember I was reading... Um, there's the American Psychological Association talked about how about every three generations, there's some person that radically shifts and changes what's happened in their pattern of ancestors. Okay. And it resonated with me because I happened to be that person. Yeah. <laughs> I happened to be the person that was like, oh, no. I'm going to step up in my family okay. and it's my turn. <laughs> no, we, addiction, abuse, this is not normal. We're yeah. not going to normalize this and sweep it all under the rug. And they were like, no, we're going to keep normalizing it. Yeah. We don't like that you're, you're saying like, nope, things. Right. I'm the generation. Yes. Yeah. So, and that, that came, for me, that was a lot of acceptance work, too, like yeah. to dare to be different and to yeah. dare to talk about things and to dare to talk about feelings and you know, the, the grief is, is okay and acceptable and recovery yeah. is okay and acceptable. And these maladaptive coping mechanisms are harmful over time, you know, and even yeah. just wearing a mask, how harmful and painful that can be. And so even for people that are listening and maybe even grieving those kinds of things, that they dare to be different, they yeah. dare to step outside of it, um, just know that oftentimes the first person out of a system takes the biggest hit, but it it creates the pattern and the tide for healing for generations to come. Absolutely. It's not just your healing. I mean, we learn everything yeah. really, but grief for sure, mostly through all the implicit things yeah. you know, and the explicit things. So yeah. when I hear parents say, I don't want to cry in front of my kids or I don't want to tell my kids or I don't want mm-hmm. them to have to go through hard things. I just think, well, what are you teaching them? How are they going to know? How are they going to know? Like, she was always perfect, <laughs> right? And then when they feel sad, angry, confused, mm-hmm. lost, they don't have all the quote unquote answers figured out, then they're going to think, well, there just must be something wrong with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of the greatest gifts we can give children is to model vulnerability, age appropriately. Yeah, of course. You're oversharing, yeah. you're not turning them into your therapist, or your best friend, but like, yeah. it's okay to say that you're having a rough day. It's okay that they see you cry. It's okay that they see you need to rest or self-care. Yeah. You know, we're going to have quiet right now, write all your thoughts on a piece of paper and we will reconvene, but <laughs> yeah, we are not exactly. going to do a thousand questions right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Junice Rockman. When we come back, I invite Junice to share what she's discovered when clients are able to do the hard work of grief and trauma recovery and the surprising benefits that result from that most difficult work. As you heard me mention at the top of the show, it's my mission to change the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. Part of that work includes helping grievers start to understand that some of our suffering comes from those maladaptive strategies and harmful grief beliefs that permeate our culture so deeply, so deeply, in fact, that they become embedded in our very own thoughts and self-talk. I've intentionally created safe, supportive, and educational services to meet you wherever you're at including individual sessions, group-guided meditations, workshops, and seminars, including the one I mentioned earlier, Ditching the Shoulds of Grief, coming up in February. I'd be honored to help you find meaningful and practical ways to incorporate space for your grief so that you can do the important, necessary, beautiful work of living more fully each day. 
You can learn more about these offerings and about why I do this work by visiting reimagininggrief.com. Yeah. You know, you touched on just a little bit ago, but I'd love to kind of go there and explore a little bit, either sort of what you've experienced in your own life in terms of grief, but also, of course, what you've seen as you've worked with folks over the years. I always try to use the most expansive definition of grief in in all the work that I do, because I think not only do we not talk about grief generally in this culture, we certainly don't really give space or allow for grief to be in its most expansive definition. And when we do that, then people become grief thieves, what I call them, and Mm -hmm. compare, you know, this kind of Mm -hmm. idea. So when you think about what you've experienced in your life or what you've seen in, in the patients that you've worked with, what kinds of scenarios or situations were you seeing grief that maybe the person themselves wasn't naming or identifying mm-hmm. as grief or they were using those maladaptive coping strategies because they weren't honoring and naming that as a yeah. loss? Yeah. Well, I have seen definitely in terms of coping strategies that are not sustainable you know, I've seen quite a bit of use of like religion, for example. Okay. Yeah. You know, where people are, they'll come in and they're like, well, I'm sad about the loss of this person in my life, but I'm okay because this scripture says that or this, yeah. you passage, know, yeah. this passage says that or my pastor said this or my priest said this. And it's like they want to just cover up the pain. Yeah. And so sometimes it takes a while. <laughs> to work through the process to where they can integrate their spirituality and see that allowing themselves to grieve is divine. And if you look through every religious text, whether it be the Torah or the Quran um, or the Bible, there was always there were always there were always moments of grief. And even from some of the greatest um, people that have walked this planet, yeah. like Christ Himself, there right. was tremendous grief right. and right. mourning expressed. So this doesn't disconnect you from your faith or make your faith lacking. Right. Rather it allows you to become more human and one with with your faith. So that 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 I think is huge. And then also I think gender plays into there's been, you know, quite a few um that I've sat across the couch from, like men, for example, that you know, yeah. and they'll kind of like say all of these hor- horrible things or traumas that they've lived through and they're like, Yeah, but it's okay or it's all yeah. good or they'll kinda of laugh at the end. Yeah. I'm like, Well, yeah. okay. Yeah. Let's pause and let's go back. Did you hear what you just said? Yeah. And then did you hear how you just framed it? Like, yeah. Where does that sit with you? And where do you feel that in your body? And you're like, what? So sometimes we'll even take out like this emotion wheel so they can look and find a word to describe yeah. it. And I'm like, where do you feel that? I don't know. I don't. So it's getting back in touch so that we're not just shells of people walking, like walking dead. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I definitely want to touch on the embodied about embodiedness of pain and trauma and grief for sure. One of the things that... Um, resonated for me when you were just talking, whether somebody is talking about a death loss or they're talking maybe about abuse or some kind of trauma they experience is, I don't think we peel back to name that as loss. Like there's loss in trauma because we had the right to have an expectation of a life free from pain, free from trauma, free from, you know, childhood abuse if it was, or Mm -hmm. sexual abuse or crime. And so there's the event that happens to us when we become traumatized you know, that some experience, but then there's also this other layer of being able to grieve that version of yourself that didn't get to walk through the world believing that, you know, adults don't harm you or Mm -hmm. that strangers don't rape you or Mm -hmm. that police, I mean, don't shoot you for doing nothing, whatever it is. And, And that particular aspect of really 
bringing compassion and honoring the loss, that loss, which mm-hmm. is very different than the death loss, of course, mm-hmm. of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I'll hear people sometimes, sometimes um, patients have said, well, it is what it is. You know, this is just how it looks. Yeah. Okay. At the same time, though, the the hope of doing the trauma recovery work and the grief work is not that you have to stay in that exact space or swim in it forever, but then on the other side of it, because we have this neurological net, so then when trauma happens, not only does does that experience get encapsulated in this net, but also who we were at that time, our creativity, our interest, our potential, our potentiality is locked up in that. So yeah. when we unpack the the grief or unpack the trauma, we're also unpacking our potential. And I've seen so often where people come back and they're like, oh my gosh, I used to play the guitar or I'm better yeah. with numbers now, or I don't have the social anxiety anymore because now they've released not only the incident, but everything the incident robbed, robbed them of. Yeah. 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 Being like stuck in that point in time to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's... I can definitely speak for myself that I have the doing my own work around grief and loss of my husband. And also I experienced some early trauma, um, sexual violence when I was younger. And I definitely, when I started to address that work, I definitely saw, I think it's actually what's what's allowing me to have the kind of creativity that I have now at this phase in my life at almost... 50 okay, this look year. Look at you. Um, <laughs> you look amazing. <laughs> thank you. But I think that that is so important, what you're talking about. The, the, the invitation to do grief work or to do trauma work is, I think people think, well, I don't want to, I want to just say everything's fine because I don't want to be that person who's kind of miring and sitting in this stew of you know sadness or anger mm-hmm. or resentment. And it's so missing the point that actually attending, bearing witness mm-hmm. to that version of yourself, yeah. you know, and sort of gently, you know, amending and healing yes. opens you up to have creativity, vulnerability, yeah. stronger relationships, yeah. right? I do think I experience more true moments of joy in my life now than I did. And I was always been a pretty, you know, self-actualized. I went to grad school and social work. You know, I mean, I was already kind of like a whatever hippie dippy, you know, on this trajectory. But I really do think that I am able to access joy and delight and um, to, and the kind of creativity burst that I think I'm going through right now because I was willing to sit in the muck, in the mire and to attend to, and it did unlock you know, some of those versions of myself that kind of got stuck at the different points of trauma in my mm-hmm. life. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then it 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 becomes like cross-cultural and multi-generational. If you have children or if you don't, the people that you're around, you change the way that you are so that you're not, you know, you're no longer having the perhaps nightmares or flashbacks yeah. or the hypervigilance, you know. Hypervigilance, a big one. Right. And that, it's, you know, yeah. and that neural mirroring, you know, are the people that are around us, they pick up on that. But if we can do our healing work, then we can also, we can, because if, if, if trauma can be intergenerational, so can healing. I love that. That's, You've read my grandmother's hand, right? Resma Menekum. Have you? No. And okay. Every time I say stuff, people are always like, "That <laughs> you sounds are gonna, just like this book." And gonna, I'm like, "I don't know the book." You'll. Uh, but I have heard of the book. I already one. lent out my copy. Otherwise, okay. I'd lend you mine. So support his work and buy it anyways. And I'll drop. I think I dropped um, the link to the book in my last episode with nice. uh, my conversation with Sh- Shona Teruza because we were talking about 
um, intergenerational trauma, immigration trauma. She kind of went from country to country and was in Zimbabwe during the war, racial trauma too. Yeah. And and I think that book, the work that Resma has been doing is really helping us understand that exactly what you're talking about, which is trauma can be not just epigenetically, yeah. culturally, in family systems, behaviorally passed on, and so can healing. And that's the invitation. And so can healing. Yeah. I yeah. work with some of the folks in my caseloader, um, you know, in the legal field and they're doing stuff with immigration or their principals and teachers or yeah. their law enforcement. So a lot of them are interfacing with so much trauma and by being able to work with them so that they can um, access healing and coping mechanisms, it just helps to you know, change the domino effect, to change the narrative. So they're not creating re-traumatizing right. by not being able to show up with empathy or right. creativity in the work that they're doing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Or having those heightened responses to things that come across their table during the day and people taking that, oh, that's how we respond? Okay. Right. You know, rather than rather than being grounded and being able to absorb because you've been healed. Because the, the thing about triggers, um, when I do EMDR work, with clients, I, I talk about how triggers are, it's almost like if you had baking soda kind of spread on a counter, but you can't really see it because maybe it's like marble or something. Mm-hmm. So it's all mixed in. But then if you go and you start spraying vinegar and you see it bubble up, it's like something can only be triggered if it's there. It has to be right. something there. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so rather than say, okay, I'm just going to ignore the trigger. I'm just going to not right. go where loud noises maybe are. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. The, you know, and so and you know, even in our relationships with people, the, the oftentimes the parts of of our of our partners or our friends or our coworkers that trigger us the most are invitations to heal. A thousand percent. <laughs> Not to become resentful, but to look within and say, "Wait, what is this bringing up in me?" And yeah. and sometimes we choose scenarios in our interpersonal relationships uh, based on childhood wounds. We're creating a pattern, we're completing a pattern, we're trying to heal a pattern, we're continuing yeah. it, maybe all of the above. Harville Hendricks talks about yeah. that. Yeah. You know, so again, this this entire Earth suit experience, a return to love and, yeah. and multi-generational healing and hopefully global and collective healing on some level. And do, do you think, how do you think about love in terms of the collective? I mean, we think about beloved community and love. And as I said, I, we started today, um, Bell Hooks' book, All About Love, touches on that. But Part of this work, our own work of grief and recovery and trauma healing is self-love, right? Yeah. And that part of what we're seeing, I think, in this friction out mm-hmm. in the world, mm-hmm. like how do we have collective love if we don't have right. self-love? And I again, I think people frame it as an either or, uh-huh. but I think we get to work on them simultaneously. Yeah, I I did. I was doing, I did a um, segment on NPR and we were talking about healing, like healing in a climate of political um, unrest, racial protests, yeah. and pandemic. And one of the things I said was the the person that has the, mo- the most racist or hateful person in the room is a person that has the most fear. And, yeah. and I, I got some feedback from people who had been like pledged, you know, like hate group uh, yeah. members for years. And they, they, it actually resonated with them. Because it really, what we start to what we can start to ask ourselves is like, what am I afraid of? Yeah, I mean, it's back to what it's you're fear. talking about that neurobiological yeah. fight, flight, freeze. You're listening to "Grief Is a Sneaky Bitch." I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. 
So when we release that fear and release yeah. that scarcity, like you're going to take something from me or I'm going to lose a position, I'm going to yeah. lose power, I'm going to lose privilege, I'm going to lose rights. You know, whenever we're ready to act out, rather it's through, you know, drug addiction or sex addiction or workaholism or whatever it is. Yeah. We can ask ourselves a more powerful question, which is like, what am I really afraid of right now? Because if we can get to that, we can start to release some of that and lean into abundance and lean into potential and possibility rather than scarcity. Because when we do that, the scarcity dance, it just keeps feeding itself and never gets full. It's like a disordered hunger. That scarcity dance is just the most it's a hunger that never problematic. Gets, yeah, yeah, you never get full. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me how you're thinking about um, grief in this time in our lives. We're recording in late 2020. Um, I know, <laughs> which if you're listening to this years down the road, just go Google what happened in 2020. Happened? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> uh, everything happened in 2020. Um, but I, I have been thinking, I have been wondering when we, when we are in the future listening back or looking back yeah. at this time, when we think about the harm and we can't talk about it collectively. Let me pause and say, though we're all grieving and we all 100% of us grieve many times in our lives, we don't all grieve differently because we grieve from this situation, this sort of social, you know, emotional, physical, cultural orientation from which we sit. Mm -hmm. So I'm not naming that, for instance, white Americans are mm -hmm. grieving very differently, you know, writ large than black Americans. Mm -hmm. I would say people who've lost people specifically to COVID are grieving differently than people who are yeah. just who are out of work or lost, you know, contact with family members. So mm -hmm. not to sort of blanket everybody together, but, but I, I do wonder, and I, I wonder what you've, you are beginning to think about when we look back a year from now or two years from now, what is the work that we need to do sort of individually, community-wise yeah. to buffer, to recover, to heal so much of the wounds of this yeah. particular moment in time. Yeah, it, it feels to me It's like, a big question. It but. is a big question. <laughs> Don't worry, God. No She's pressure. Gonna, no pressure, no pressure. <laughs> Answer the question of ages <laughs> for humanity. It's fine. You got this. <laughs> I got I it. I believe in you. I got it. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do. I kind of think that um, we've experienced like a big detox of like humanity. Mm. Um, and it reminds me of like I've done work in treatment programs like um, outpatient treatment programs or partial hospitalization programs yeah. for um, substance abuse disorder and opiate addiction. And there's this detox period and it's incredibly painful and vile and, yeah. you know, sickening and almost feels life worse than any yeah. other kind of right. Pain. Almost yeah. feels life ending, yeah. you know, um, mm. but you can't. All of these things wouldn't be coming up if they weren't if they weren't already present. Right. <laughs> yes. And new things can't be replaced until these things come up. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think that this has been a very big detox. And I think the fact that we're able to have these conversations now with such fluidity. Mm. Whereas before they were more like closeted conversations or like kitchen table stuff that we didn't talk about across communities, across yeah. ethnicities, Indian, you know, Asian, indigenous yeah. American, uh, European American, African American, yeah. Arab American. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. naming is, you know, just the whole rainbow where we couldn't talk about these things. And even gender, like I was, I was, I went to coffee and, 
and the person that was with coffee with was like, oh, I'm sorry, am I mansplaining? And I was like, wow, look at how far we've come. Right. The fact that you can just stop and check yourself. Check yourself. and Right, yeah. right. Or I've done EMDR sessions with, 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 um, with white American clients of European American descent yeah. that feel so much shame and guilt. And that's a different kind of generational trauma. Yeah. That oh, yeah. Carrying. By the way, white bodies are carrying intergenerational trauma. Yes. Just not just not just. And white I can bodies. talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. As tell. A brown yeah. woman, because yeah. because it, because we need to look, and that's how we connect, yeah. right? Yeah. It's not just, well, your grief trumps mine, or no, you have to be made wrong for. No, no, no. So this is, I think, if we have continue these conversations and then using resources like yours and like yeah. what's available. And making it a regular conversation yeah. and in implementing it in our, you know, taking your work to corporate America yeah. and taking some I'm of the trying. stuff, right, like yeah. some of the stuff I'm working on, taking it into the yeah. school system so that it can become a new fabric of who we are, yeah. that we don't lose this moment and forget it and go back to the way that we were. Because we really, we already had a virus of disconnection before this virus showed up. <laughs> Y'all, I'm going to pause on that one. Did you just hear that? That's a quotable moment right there. <laughs> so much of what you said really resonated for me, including that, that we already had this virus. And also that we are all, we don't just, we have to detox, we have to name this intergenerational trauma mm-hmm. or this pain that we mm-hmm. have, whether it's sort of both sort of the lived trauma of this mm-hmm. earth life, you know, of this cycle, but also the intergenerational mm-hmm. trauma. We have to name it. But then we also have to detox all of those coping strategies that kept us maybe, again, back to that reptilian survival brain, right? And we have to detox. And instead of, I I do hear a lot of pushback right now. I'm constantly, in my last episode, I was talking about race. My sponsor for my last episode does work with white people to really own some of the intergenerational trauma and the kind of spreading of harm that we white Americans continue to do, often unbeknownst to ourselves. So but I think when we talk about this upheaval, this time of 2020, mm-hmm. I love that you use the metaphor of the detox because instead of saying, oh, why has everything changed or it's just so difficult or I wish you would st- stop talking about it already or yeah. talking about it is actually what's causing the problem. Right. No. No. It's it's, <laughs> it's already been here. <laughs> it's been there. We checked yeah. ourselves into rehab. We're detoxing. But yes. the beauty of detoxing is when we do that cleansing, right. then we have this sort of fresh chance to say, okay, what is the good medicine? Yeah. What is the healing? What is the good medicine that my body, that yeah. my mind, that my soul, that our collective body, mind, and soul needs? Yeah. I mean, you. I think the, these kinds of moments, you and I are the hope of our ancestors, that you yeah. can can have your background and yeah. your where you come from and your ethnicity and where yeah. I can have my background and come from and my, my ethnicity we can have these conversations about yeah. healing this is this these were because we were born into this trauma and we were born into right. this colonialism and we were born into this racism White supremacy and, and, and no matter if you were a benefactor of the system or at the bottom of the system yeah. people for the very most part, did not ask to be a part of it or ask to play that role. And I think that needs to be said to alleviate not only the shame, but the blame and to see the connection in our experiences. Seeing that shared humanity. Yeah. And regardless of whether or not we were the creators of the systems, we Uh are living in the systems. And so now what? You know, back to your like, you're the generation and your family. I wonder if when we look back at this period of our life in in the U.S., in this country anyway, although I think what's happening in the U.S. is being mirrored globally in lots of different regions. But whether we look back that as a collective, we were the generation 
sort of yeah. at the collective level who really had yeah. that kind of shift. Right, right. I, 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 I certainly hope so. And I think that, you know, for so long, there so much has, had been swept under the rug. Yeah. You know, like now... Honestly, like when there's Thanksgiving now, I've had people be like, oh, wait, do you celebrate Thanksgiving? Which for me is so powerful because I remember as a kid feeling grief every Thanksgiving. And every yes. single time I would have to watch a play about pilgrims and stuff because I'm watching thinking through the lenses of my great-grandmother yeah. and my grandmother. Right. Right. So the fact that there's this there's this awareness and the sensitivity and that we can have these conversations. We, huge. We're now going under this big American rug where there was all this stuff swept. You can only sweep so much stuff under a rug before you start tripping over it. Right. right? And now we're like. So now we're. we're, we're pulling this rug yeah, back. Yeah. And we're realigning ourselves. Yeah. Getting back into a place of realignment, not perfection, but realignment. Something you just, you were talking about a little bit earlier, um, both with your clients and the the work that you're doing, is the um, embodiment. Can we talk a little bit? Can you talk a little bit about why it's important for us to recognize and understand the embodiment of grief, of trauma, of pain? Yeah. Both sort of, again, the lived in, in this generation or even sort of intergenerational intergenerational. Why is it important for us to attend to the sort of embodied, either from the sort of neurobiological, the stress hormones, but also just what happens when, what's the risk if we don't attend to our embodied selves? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, and our bodies keep the score as Besser uh, Besser van der Kolk um, so wonderfully and historically laid out in his book and his work. Um, You know, we reduce our, our health outcomes, you know, chronic illnesses, chronic pain. Um, there's a chronic pain pro- protocol that I did a training for um, with EMDR work because it's a way of addressing, you know, fibromyalgia and arthritis mm-hmm. and um, all other kinds of um, chronic illnesses, migraine headaches and things like that. Um through unlocking the trauma and where it's stored in yeah. the body. Yeah. And oftentimes people that have back pain, lower back pain, they don't feel supported. People have chronic shoulder pain. They feel like they carry too much weight on their shoulders. Right. You know, um, the, the arthritis, there's like this brittleness. They're not able to absorb and digest and process life. So we have to get to the root causes. Yeah. We can't change what's growing from the tree until we get to the root and, that, yeah. and, and then replant something new. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to be a society that lives so much in our head that we're disconnected with our bodies. Which again, back to culture, I think we are set up for mm-hmm. that failure, right? Yeah. In the U.S. culture. I think yeah. we live as if our we're like you know uh-huh. heads, and then there's the <laughs> feel body. nothing, feel nothing, and nothing. <laughs> yeah, there's no connection. Between. Yeah, so so sort of symbiotically inviting that sense of wholeness because part of the goal of therapy, therapy and treatment planning and wellness planning is self integration to yeah. take the parts of ourselves to become whole. Yeah. So that's what this is about, and that's why body work is so important. And you will notice your health outcomes improving. <laughs> it's incredible. Right. I've even seen folks with respiratory disorders when they can start to to speak and breathe and speak out yeah. the things that they've been holding for years or for generations along with changing with nutrition and diet and exercise. Yeah. They they where they're not struggling with yeah. with asthma anymore. I mean, I've seen it happen. So Absolutely. we're just living breathing like sponges carrying stuff and that's why it's so important to cleanse. Yeah. I mean, back to that detox metaphor. Yeah. yeah. Well, and our embodied cells Sorry, newsflash for those of you who are listening or watching is it's not like a one-time diet that the Kardashians are selling you <laughs> on social media, right? This this takes work. And, and just yes. like detox does, the first time you notice, the second time, this is going to be yeah. 
because we have we are patterned, we have developed these other patterns right. and sort of unlocking and getting at the root. I can think so many times when I've led people through body scan meditations, it just happened the other day. And when I got to the heart center, yeah. it just opened something up in that person and she realized that she had been like holding on to so much pain yeah. around her grief. And she was wondering why she was walking around all day having uh-huh. chest pain. Yes. And that, doing that one-time body scan meditation didn't mean that she's forever, right, right. you know, like free of that. But she was able to name for herself, yeah. oh, I've, she said to me, I've got more work to do there. And I said, yes, yeah. you do. But aren't you grateful that you are investing in spending this time to exactly. to see that. No, exactly. Healing becomes a lifestyle, not an event. Diet, the root word of it is D-I-E. Um, I remember learning some years ago, like I'll, I'll do a juice cleanse, you know, at least like one day a week okay, and then a few days each month. That way it's a routine. Yeah. It's not just some big thing you do in January or because <laughs> you need to get into some yeah. outfit. This yeah. isn't about that. This yeah. is about... We live in a toxic environment, a toxic world, so we need to be on a regular routine of cleansing ourselves, not just physically, but then also emotionally. I had a client, we were doing EFT tapping, and I had her tap on this into the center of her heart, and one of the clearing affirmations we said was, um, I forgive my mother for mm-hmm. not being the nurturer that I needed, and I release her, and I set her free because she's on her path, and I'm mm-hmm. on mine. And it was just like oh, such that a just gave me the chills. Yeah, it was such a breakthrough moment. Yeah, that she was holding this, and oftentimes people feel stressors in their heart, in that, or in their chest, or heart chakra, and that typically represents a feeling of loss. Yeah, but after doing that kind of work, there's like this restorative feeling. It's like, oh, okay, that that is the reflection of the restorative work yeah. that's happening in healing. And you're reclaiming your heart. Yeah. I mean, part of what's happening when we don't identify our embodied selves and where we're feeling loss or pain is that we, as you said, become detached so that we don't even own our own sort mm-hmm. of sacred self. So mm-hmm. this work of sacred uh, self, yes. our, our work of doing this really allows us to reconnect. And then, and that means that we are never lost when yeah. we are kind of grounded in our own. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if you can look at, you know, if you can go out into nature and go out into society or go out and check on your friends, check on your strong friends, check on your friends that you know. Oh, check on your strong friends, please. Please. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. if you can go out and you can say, like, I am that, I, I am. Like, and you yeah. see yourself in every expression of creation and humanity, yeah. that again becomes the collective process of integration yeah. and wholeness. Yeah. Yeah. So I know, like me, you are a super duper learner. You're always. <laughs> I mean, you teach, of course, and educate through your work, um, but also you are always absorbing and learning. That's one of the reasons I think we hit it off the very first time we yep. met. So what <clears throat> what's on the horizon for you in terms of your own curiosity, your own yeah. learning in this kind of realm of grief and trauma and healing? Like yeah. what's what's the next horizon for you? I'm so I'm really excited because I'm I've over the next few years, I'll be releasing this curriculum um, that's behavioral health for um, academic institutions, you know, which I'm super excited about that because I've gone and done events at places and just to see the way kindergartners light up and college students light up. I'm like, okay, we've got something here. We got universal principles. So now people will be having these kind of conversations in their classrooms, you know, and so that, that I'm incredibly excited about. And and then on a personal level, I have a mentor that does equine therapy. So I've been getting out doing some of that. That's been amazing. Okay, we're going to talk after the show because I need to know about this. <laughs> okay. I assume that's here in Austin. It yeah. is not too far away. Okay. It's north. Yeah. 
music therapy. I personally have been learning to play the uh, acoustic guitar, which has been amazing. Nice. <laughs> it's oh. been so restorative. That's and I, awesome. I, I like to sing. I sing. And so I've been yeah. doing that okay. together. And then Talk about embodied yes, expression, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and being able to like move that energy through the body instead of holding on to whatever it is that, that you're experiencing. And then just... Um, just in my own academic pursuit, I'm going to do this applied clinical nutrition certification deal okay. just because I love talking about how to heal your cells yeah. <laughs> through nutrition. I love that. So I love that. So you've shared so much wisdom, but I know this is just literally a drop in the bucket of all the wisdom that you have. Where can people yeah. follow you, find you, learn more about you and your work? Yeah, Share thank that with you us. so much. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, they can just go to jrocktherapyinstitute.com and subscribe to our, our newsletter um, or find me on Instagram, jrocktherapy, and my podcast on any streaming platforms, jrocktherapy. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, you guys on Instagram, she releases these awesome videos sometimes yeah. that really guides us through things. And um, I use them all the time. So Thank you should you definitely so check it out. Thank you so much You're for joining so me today on Grief as a Sneaky <laughs> Bitch. This has been fantastic. My fellow Michigan friend. I know. We just Didn't found out we're both that. from, from Mich- we both lived in Michigan. Went I'm from there originally. Ann Arbor. Go blue. Sorry. Go blue. Go or blue. Or go home. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. I just lost the entire know, Ohio State sorry, fan guys. club. I know. I'm a little bit of a fanatic. <laughs> I, yeah. Sorry for our, for our Ohio friends. Um, anyways, thanks so much for joining me You're on welcome, today's Lisa. episode. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate your work. Yeah. Thanks. I hope you learned as much as I did in today's conversation with my guest, Junice Rockman. She is a kindred spirit in so many ways, and not just because we're both Michigan fans. Sorry, Buckeyes. It's because we see the importance of opening up honest conversations about mental health, grief, trauma, and healing. We share a deep curiosity for interventions that invite us to address our whole selves and the impact that has on our broader human community. You can learn more about Janice's work by visiting jrocktherapyinstitute.com or find the link in the show notes for today's episode. Once again, I want to thank Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today. Before you go, I'd love to ask you a quick favor. If you've listened to the show before, you've heard me share what an absolute honor of a lifetime it is to create these spaces for my guests and for you. Based on the number of downloads and notes I receive from listeners around the world, I'm guessing the show is making an impact in some of your lives too. Yet I know for a fact there are more grievers out there who are feeling isolated and alone in their grief whose grief journey might be made just a little bit easier by listening to this show. If you want to help them find the show, here's what I'm asking. Head to Apple Podcasts, find the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, leave a rating and write a review. The world of algorithms counts on that to get this show out to the people who might just need it most. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. <laughs>